So if, if you were paying attention in the first service, you would have heard um, Pastor Jim steal from last week's class in his uh, presentation of the uh, time of offering by reading from Romans 12.1. And I just thought, I'm so glad you didn't do this last week because then we would have been in cahoots again. Um, but isn't it amazing how so frequently we have material that is in our church service and in our worship and in the presentation of the word. And then we come into this class and it's like, no, we didn't plan it that way. It just worked out that way. And I think that's God's way of telling us that uh, we need to be paying attention at all times and in all ways. So everybody is... You don't have one. Oh. I don't pay attention anyway. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, look at this. We have a <laughs> we have a giving soul. Um, let's read the English version. Not don't read the Greek. Uh, the English version on your handout of these first of these two verses, so that we can have the collection together, because we are going to focus on verse two. So starting with verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now you might say, um, you know, why, why are you splitting these apart when you're teaching it. Well, I think it's just as I tried to say last week, the, this section is so rich. There's so much here. And we spent an entire hour just on verse one last week. And even when we're done, we kind of came away going, that was a good introduction. Uh, we could spend weeks going over this because it's as if the entirety of the how to live the Christian life is encapsulated in these words. And I, I may be overstating a little bit, but I think you get the, uh, get the idea. And if you'll, I, again, because I don't normally do this, um, I put the Greek text below so that you can see the phraseology in how the Greek language is represented. And the first thing you'll notice for verse 2 is the Greek starts with a different word, which is not in our ESV. It starts with the word and. Now, the word and is in the King James. The word and is in some other translation. They just didn't put it in the ESV. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. Because it's a connective <coughs> word. If you, you know, we, we, we jokingly say, if you see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? It's the same thing with the word and. That's why it is somewhat dangerous to pull these two verses apart. Because they are connected. Paul's writing is connecting the idea of presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice and... Don't be conformed to this world either. It's a unified message. They're not, you do one thing or you can do the other. It's not a smorgasbord. It's not the McDonald's drive-through. It's not the Burger King, make it your own way. This is connected. But we have this, this phrase, do not be conformed to this world. Hmm. I have a feeling if we were, if I were to interview each of you separately, you would define it differently. There might be echoes between some of your ideas, but some would say it's a particular um, behavior that would be uh, inappropriate. Others would say, well, it's more of a lifestyle 
or for others it's theological. And so you have this challenge of defining, well, what is Paul trying to say when he's saying do not be conformed to this world? Well, let's take a look at the word conformed. The Greek word is suschematio. Yeah, it's one of those normal words we always say at dinner. <clears throat> uh, it's a very rare word. In fact, the only other time it's used is in 1 Peter 1.14. Um, I'll just pull that verse out here for you. 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Same word. Now, there's variations of this Greek word that are used elsewhere, of course, but the Greek technically means scheme. That's where you see it kind of embedded inside the Greek word itself, schematio, the idea of scheming. So what does that mean? Well, the S-U in front of it means together, and then the idea of scheming is the word appearance. So it looks like it's together with to become something else, something different. And what is being conformed to or to pattern yourself, to mold yourself, to fashion yourself, these are, some, these are things that change and you're changing it to what? And there's the, there's the rub, to this world. Now, <clears throat> uh, the old commentators on Romans, Sandy, and Hedlam actually translated this verse as, do not adapt the external and fleeting fashion of this world, but be transformed in your inmost nature. Interesting. Do not adapt to the external and fleeting fashion of this world. Okay, so now let's look at the word world. And then we'll back up and look at all of this in context. This is not your typical word, cosmos. Notice what the Greek word is. It's a different word. It's not cosmos, which we typically see. It's the word ion, or we would, that's where we get our word eon from, or age. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, this word is, just to, is used to describe Satan's dominion. So I'm not overstating it when he writes 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In their case, the God of this ion, this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. This is Satan's dominion he's talking about. So do not change yourself to the dominion of the enemy. That sounds straightforward, doesn't it? We can think, oh yeah, well, I would never do that. Really? Uh-huh. So you're perfect, right? Yes, I know your soul has been changed. You are in Christ. But as we said last week, this is why we were being asked to put our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our bodies don't. Our bodies are not saved. And we talked about the, the challenge of uh, dualism, we have to be careful of that. We are a whole person. But why would Paul say, I do what I don't want to do? Because sin is prevalent in us. And we struggle with this. And so this admonition that Paul is writing to the people of Rome, this church in Rome, don't be conformed to this world. And I'll tell you, I have, a, I have a book on my shelf called, Are We Rome? I mean, you think when you look around and you look at a debauched and debased society, 
And I don't know if I'm overstating that. I don't think I am. Understating. I'm understating it, okay. A debauched and debased society. And to think of Paul writing this, where was he? Where was Paul when he wrote this? Do you remember? What city was he in? He was in Corinth. He's in Corinth. And he's sitting in Corinth. And if you've ever been there, you can still see the pagan temple up on the top of the hill that had the temple prostitutes. He writes to the people in Rome, they just have to walk out in the street and go, okay, yeah. I guess our lifestyle would be a contrast to what we see every day. And Paul is, he said, I urge you therefore, in the verse one, please think about this. Don't be conformed to this ion. Robert Trench in his book, Synonyms of the New Testament, he describes this word as that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time current in the world, which may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but would constitute a most real and effective power being the moral or immoral atmosphere at which every moment of our lives we inhale. And again, inevitably, to exhale. And he wrote that a hundred years ago. He's trying to describe this word world or aeon as saying, it's hard to define what the world is. It's pretty much everything that's not of God, which is like 99% of what's out there. Our world, and I'm going to quote from another writer, our age is self-centered, self-pleasing, self-indulgent, self-concerned, and indifferent to others. The prevailing popular thinking and culture is a continual rebellion against God and His authority and seeks to conform all the world's inhabitants into its godless worldview. And this worldview impregnates all of mankind, molding, corrupting, degrading, and the process affecting all culture and every institution. Boy, do I sound like a fundamentalist. Good. I sound like what's in the scripture. Paul isn't playing around here. He's not saying, um, please find a middle ground with the world. Find some sort of common ground with the world. He's not saying that at all. He said, don't be conformed to it. H.A. Ironside, another great commentator from a long time ago, he says, the entire world system is summed up in three terms. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of possessions. And if you disagree with me, or think he's making that up because he's so brilliant, all he's doing is quoting 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I'm going to digress here, but when we have a culture that is enormously obsessed with sex and any deviation or anything that says you can't do that, the world says, well, you're just not tolerant. 
No, I'm not. I'm not tolerant. And nor should we. Yeah, there's sometimes when the culture is now in gaining increasing power, there can be consequence for standing up against it. We see this regularly now with certain teachers or certain people that have their jobs taken away or other things that relate to that. And it's not just politics. We're talking morality and culture, taking a cultural stand based on our faith. It is not an uncommon cliche. Um, in fact, I, I found it written in the back of my Bible. Um, and I don't even remember when I wrote it down. But the question is, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? A thermometer is someone that is going to change based on the environment in which you are sitting. But a thermostat changes the environment. So if I were to walk over to that thermostat and set it at 120, I would empty this room. <laughs> but the, thermo the thermometer is just telling us what it is right now. And if it gets hotter, it just tells me it's hotter. Yeah. Settings. Yeah, you know, since you never would see legs or other things, that suddenly they were in there in positions that, as you look at it now, you go, oh yeah, I never saw that before. Now I can see what he's talking about, you yeah. know. Yeah. Culture. We, we just don't realize, until we actually start thinking about it, how culture influences even our language, how we interact with each other, and our conversation, and what we consume either physically or mentally. Another w way of looking at it is uh, many Christians are chameleons. They're very lizard-like and are not very pretty to look at, but if you put them in front of a whiteboard, they disappear. They just change their color to match the environment so they won't be threatened and they won't be prey. And then that's not P-R-A-Y. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, a little thorn can make a rather big blister. And if you let that little thing into your shoe, you will end up not being able to walk. No, and it could become infected. And they might have to amputate. I mean, it's that kind of a wild metaphor but then he went on in another, another section. He said, when Satan can't catch us with a big sin, he'll try a little one. And it doesn't matter to him what bait he uses as long as he catches the fish. What a vivid picture. Because the bait might be different for each one of us in this room. He didn't care what the bait is. He's got a lot of things to choose from. His tackle box is overflowing with options. And he doesn't care as long as he gets the fish. So in my typical um, over-researching, uh, I came across something I said, no, there's no way, that doesn't exist. Did you know there's such a thing as square watermelons? Yes. You've heard of this? I mean, I went, no, that can't be true. That's got to be a myth. So, yes, I looked it up and I read rather extensively on square watermelons that have come out of Japan starting around 12, 13 years ago. And they take the watermelon seed, seedlings and they put them inside tempered glass cubes and then grow them. Why? They're easier to ship. Mm 
I mean, think about it. You could fit more watermelons because they're all in the right, you know, cube shape that will fit in the truck. Okay, the problem is they're not edible. Really? Yeah, they actually harvest them early and inside the fruit is yellow. Oh, yes. Because if they let it ripen too far, then it gets all squishy and it's a mess. So they actually stop, let starting, stop its growth at a certain point, and then they spray them and they become decorations. Certain of these things are so uh, popular, they can cost as much as $200 US. I'll tell you, I don't want one that bad, but I am really curious. I would like to hold one. Just sheer curiosity. Now, why did I go down that rabbit trail? The word conform. Think about it. The world is that cube. And it's letting us grow freely. We think we have all the freedom in the world. And then after a while, we are in the shape that the world wants us to be. And these growers in Japan are now experimenting with heart-shaped watermelons, etc., etc., etc. It's becoming a thing. Can't eat them. It looks beautiful, but it's useless. It's useless. Just like us, we can look good but we're useless to use Pastor Jim's example of the world's idols. You can create them, you can make them look pretty, but they have absolutely no value. So we've heard the phrase, you need to be in the world, but not of it. Okay, that, 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 we, we kind of think, all right, well, I can come up with my parameters. But I, I came across this phrase. I just love this one. A boat in, is in the water by design. But water in the boat is a disaster. <laughs> so we can be in the water. We can be in the boat. But if you let the water in the boat, you're going to sink. Ironside concludes his thoughts here. He says, non-conformity to the world implies bringing the body and its appetites under the control of the Spirit of God, subjecting the imagination to the mind of Christ, and walking in humility of spirit through a world where self-confidence and boasting are the order of the day. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, that's kind of cool. You see the contrast. The word transformed, you see the Greek. What, what word do you see there? Metamorphosis. Exactly. Just like what? Kafka. Hmm? Oh, I wasn't thinking of cockroaches. Sorry. It didn't go literature. I was thinking butterflies, not cockroaches. <laughs> Yeah, Kafka's metamorphosis. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you know, Franz, just a little trivia thing. Franz Kafka did not like that book after he wrote it. He said he didn't have enough time to actually finish it and because of his day job. So he sent it off to the publisher and becomes his magnum opus. But yeah. No, I wasn't thinking of waking up in the morning in bed as a cockroach as the idea, but I suppose that's applicable here. You know, do not be conformed to this world or you're going to be a cockroach. Uh, thank you for that. Um, but be transformed. But here's the interesting thing. The word transformed is only used four times, or this word metamorpho is only used four times in the entire New Testament. Here... In 2 Corinthians 3.18, I'm going to read that passage to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metaphor, 
metaphor eo, into the same image from one degree of glory to the other, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The other two places it's used are Matthew 17, verse 2, and Mark 9, verse 2, Jesus was being transfigured. The transfiguration of Christ uses this same word. So the Gospels are the the story of Christ's life written from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's uh, intent and perspective. You have Matthew and Mark talking about the transfiguration. Then Paul comes along and he uses, remember he wrote 2 Corinthians before he wrote Romans. So he uses that word, and then he comes to here, and he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now, here's another way of looking at it. To be conformed is to let something from the outside shape you. Like the square watermelon. I never thought I would ever say that phrase in my life. But anyway, outside is conforming you. Don't let the world conform you. But to be transformed is from inside out. The spirit transformation in us to be changed in appearance from one thing to another. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. If you want a visual, the word transformation or transfiguration or metaphor is not here. But in Mark 5, you have the healing of the demoniac by Jesus, the Gadarenes demoniac. So when Jesus lands, the demoniac comes out of the caves and he starts yelling and screaming and is very violent. And so he exorcises the demons from him into the pigs. The pigs go jumping off the cliff. The people of the town are not happy because they just saw dinner run off the cliff. (laughs) And they're annoyed. So they come to Jesus pretty much saying, can you leave But when they get there, it says in Mark 5 that the demoniac was sitting at the fire with Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The power of God had transformed someone. Transformed someone they couldn't conform. Hmm? They couldn't conform him. They couldn't change. They tried to chain the guy up. And in in Matthew, there's more than one. uh, But there's only one that speaks. And we only have one that has actually seen. What an incredible picture. Probably the most vivid one that I can think of, uh, at least when I was studying this. So... What's the best way to erase this board? Should I squirt it first? Just turn it around. Just turn it around? Ooh, good idea. Because last last week it was all about smearing. It was not about erasing. Okay. Good idea. Here's something you can write down on the back of your your uh, your handout. And it plays around with our words here a little bit. So God says, I am going to form man in my image. The devil says, I will deform man by sin. The world says, I will conform 
in our image. Education says, you wondered where I was going. What do you think I'm going to use? What word do you think comes next? I'm going to inform by knowledge. Isn't it interesting how we think if we have enough education, we'll solve all the world's ills? Seems now the smarter we are, the worse we are. That's weird. Anyway, society says, and this one's a little stretch, but that's okay. We will reform through culture. And then only Christ says, I will transform by grace. Isn't it interesting how everything about the world, from the world, is completely antithetical to God's message? Pastor Alexander McLaren put it this way, he said, Transformation is no sudden thing. Though the revolution that underlies it may be instantaneous, the working out of the new motives, the working in of the new power, is no mere work of a moment. It is a lifelong task till the lump is leavened. Michelangelo used to say that a, a sculpture is affected by removing its parts as if the statue is somehow hidden in the marble block. We have, day by day, to work at the task of removing the superfluities that mask its outlines, sometimes with a heavy mallet and a hard blow and a broad chisel, and we take away huge chunks, sometimes with fine tools and delicate touches to remove a grain or two of powdered dust from the sparkling block, but always to seek more and more by patient, slow toil, to conform ourselves to that serene type of all perfectness that we have learned to love in Jesus Christ. Remember, this transformation is no magic change affected while you sleep. It's a commandment which we have to brace ourselves to perform day by day to set ourselves to the task of more completely assimilating ourselves to our Lord. It comes with a solemn question for us at the end of the day, am I more like Christ today than I was yesterday? And so, he says, be transformed by what? By the renewal of the mind. Interesting. So, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk about the changing of the heart, but not a lot of talk about the changing of the mind. Am I correct? <laughs> Somewhat. Depends how you define heart. It depends on how you find heart, because in their mind that was the center of the soul. We, the Greek, the center is here. So this language is the language of this time that would make more sense to the hearer, saying, renew the mind, anakinosis. There are two Greek words for new. There is neos, which is to be new at an appointed time, like a new shoe coming off of the, uh, the assembly line. But then there is kinos, which is the word here, is new in character and nature means it has been transformed. It has been renewed. Interestingly enough, you don't renew something that's never existed before. You already have truth, but we need to be reminded and renewed. A well, we just had communion, a remembrance, because we forget. A renewal, 
because we let it slide, we let it slack. The world seeks to change your mind with outside pressure, the conformity. So another rabbit trail I went down way too far was the idea of crushing an egg with your hand. If you take the egg, top and bottom, and put it in your hand and try to crush it with the tip of your fingers and the bottom of your the heel of your hand, you can't do it. I don't care if you're the strongest man in the world. You can't do it. It is physically impossible to crush an egg. One of the most fragile things. Of course, don't try it now. It costs you way too much money. <laughs> yeah, just, I'm watching these videos and going, these had to have made a long time ago. Yes, I watched YouTube videos of people trying to crush eggs with their hands. And you get this big, beefy guy going, what in the world? Is this magic? You turn it on the side, And I imagine when you go to cook an egg, you don't try to crack it at its top, do you? No. You crack it on its side so you can open it up. The outside pressure can crush you. It can conform you to its way. I have a bit of a sad example of this. Um, I'm going to disguise the connection, but somebody I know that very strong evangelical believers, and uh, I'd always admired them and appreciated them very much so. But I was in a conversation with them on the phone and found that they had completely changed their mind related to gay marriage and to the whole issue of homosexuality and is a lifestyle and its relation to Christianity even completely changed their minds because their daughter had come out as gay and they let the daughter's will change and conform their mind away from what they had believed for 55 years and I looked at that and I just went you know, at one, on one level, you can understand the connection because of the family and the child and all of that. And you want to say, and I don't have a great answer here for this, but you want to say you can't necessarily cut them off, but you also can't endorse it and then come to me and say, I need to change my mind, which is what they were doing in that phone call. Their pressure was for me saying I was wrong and that I needed to rethink my position on this issue. And I had to say, I, no, we can't work together if that's your position. I can't represent your work because I can't be associated with that position. That's not easy. But this is how the world works. It's, you know, that plink, 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 until you open the window and go, who's throwing rocks at, oh, at me? And you, they got you. So um, you have the, the, the various questions. I got another hand out here, so I'm gonna make you run around the room quick. Um, pressure's on, make it fast. Um, Now, I have, I think I mentioned last week that I have spoken on this passage in many different contexts, uh, as in keynote speeches and things of that nature. And so I have tried to answer the question, how do you renew your mind? Or at least, how do you renew your mind? What do you do? What are some of the practical things we got? Looks like Carl ends up with one after all. Yeah. No more naps for me. <laughs> no more naps. 
You know, the, some of this is going to be a blinding flash of the obvious for everyone in this room, but this lecture is also recorded. And there are people who are not in this room who hear this later, who are not even in our church, and I've heard from them. So our work here can have impact elsewhere. So I'm going to put these, what might be super obvious to you, and say, well, what do you think? So the first thing, immerse yourself in God's word. God's truth is the counter to the world's truth. There's, there's almost, I know it's a blinding flash of the obvious, but wow. Vance Havner put it that, this way. He said, the power of God's word to renew the minds because the storehouse of God's word was never meant for mere scrutiny or even primarily for study, but for sustenance. It's not simply a collection of fine proverbs and noble teachings for people to admire and quote that they, as they do Shakespeare. The Bible is a ration for the soul, a resource for the spirit, a treasure for the inner man. Its goods exhibited upon every page are ours, and they have no business merely moving respectfully amongst them and coming away none the richer. So as I did last week with the uh, verse 1 of Romans, I took verse 2 of Romans and collected, as you can see in the bottom of the page, God's word on this topic. And I am going to read it to you so that we can have this together, hearing God's word related to how to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, for who's understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it doesn't submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded let your hope fully on Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Finally, Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. May you take this meditation and use it in your own time, just like last week's. The Word is so rich and so full Another thing I say, how do you renew your mind? And of course, because I'm in the publishing business, I can't help myself to, but to say, read. As I wrote here, 
Read things that make you glad and read things that make you mad. <laughs> if it makes you mad and you don't know why, figure it out. Have an answer. Because this world is desperate for answers. Sometimes people just say things just to get a rise out of you. And if all you do is, you know, get red-faced and steamed, they just dismiss your anger. But if you have an answer, isn't that a scriptural thing? Have it be prepared with an answer. Mm -hmm. So here's a little statistic for you. The average American spends at least 608 hours a year on social media. Or 1,642 hours a year watching television. That's about three hours a day, by the way, in case you're wondering where the math comes from. Or you could spend 417 hours reading. That's 75 minutes a day. And if all you read is 200 words a minute, which is a below uh, typical reading, depending on the kind of what you're reading, if you're reading a systematic theology, it might be five words a minute. Uh, if you're reading a James Patterson novel, why? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. But 75 minutes a day, 200 words a minute is 100 books a year. Two a week. Believe it or not, you can read 100 books a year if you're just reading consistently. Problem is we get into books and we find the other boring or whatever and I could go into my entire lecture on how to write a good book. Let's not do that. <laughs> but reading makes the mind think. And as, as Ursula Le Guin put it, the fantasy novelist, she said, there are times when you're reading where you cross a street you've never crossed before. You've thought a thought you've never thought before. And you are somehow different than before you, read, you started reading, but you can't explain why. So what you're reading, there's obviously different types of reading you can do, but it's that idea of engaging the mind. And I'm gonna quote from Nicholas Carr from his book, The Shallows subtitle what the internet is doing to our brain and I'll also be very careful I imagine most of you in this room are careful about your media consumption but here's a quote the media supply the stuff of thought but they also shape the process of thought and that's what the net seems to be doing it's chipping away at my, compa my capacity to concentrate and contemplate whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to be taken in information the way the net distributes it, in a swift moving stream of particles. Intention span, slower and slower. They say for many of our youth, they have a shorter attention span than a goldfish, which is approximately seven seconds. And that's been, caught with goldfish, that's why you put one castle inside a goldfish bowl. The goldfish go, oh, castle. Ooh, castle. Ooh, castle. It doesn't remember there's a castle in his house. I'm being facetious, but you get my point. So lastly, here's the interesting thing. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Not before. You're lost. You're ping-ponging around, going, I don't know what to do next. Well, if your mind is renewed in Christ, and you are transformed for His glory, this is the reward of the transfigured life. As McLaren put it, you then know beyond doubt what you ought to do, and knowing, do it. 
This seems to me to be heaven on earth. An increased power of perceiving instinctively and surely. When you take away the magnetic metal from a compass, it snaps to true north. And we are that compass where we're, whatever's close to us, we go, ooh, wow, look at that. That's, whoa, I really want that. And then, oh, wow, ooh, that's shiny. I really want that. And you start pursuing that. You take all the way, true north. It's clear. And you can test it. You can prove it. You have the ability to do so. This is the reward of the transfigured life. But it's not easy. It takes commitment. It's a lifelong thing. They call it sanctification. This whole idea that we are in this as a journey. We have to be careful. We don't start turning this into legalism and all sorts of other deviations. I think more so we set our foundation on what it means to be a transformed believer in Christ. And everything else starts to make sense. And here's the beauty of it. Next week, we're doing Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, which even more so brings in the power of the Holy Spirit into this equation, because if you notice, the Spirit has not been mentioned in verses 1 and 2. It's not that it's been forgotten. It's just he expounds on it in much more depth. And that's what we get to do next week. So I will stop us here and let's pray. Thank you for our time, Lord. For the opportunity to explore an extremely deep passage. Every time I come away from these explorations, I feel like we just, we just barely have scratch the surface and I think that's your your point to us to come to the familiar verse to come to the familiar passages favorite passages meaningful passages and to dig into them in a in a new way and to think on these things thank you for the opportunity Lord in Jesus name amen, amen.